Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Last week we talked about the obesity pandemic. We discussed how 42% of United States residents are now considered obese. We talked about how this is also a problem worldwide, and most alarmingly, how it is disproportionately affecting children. Now, fixing obesity requires aggressive lifestyle interventions. We talked a lot about eating and how that seems to mimic almost an addiction-like pattern and how people are addicted to the feeling of being full and of eating excessive, high-calorie, low-nutrient foods. I want everyone to know that that is a very important part of the story, but the other important part, which I didn't harp on very much, is, of course, exercise. Obesity is not just a problem with too much fat. It's also a problem with too little muscle. And muscle is really so important from a metabolic standpoint. But that's enough about obesity at least for now. This week, we're going to talk about polypharmacy. Polypharmacy is defined as taking multiple different drugs. Sometimes this can be a good thing. Drugs certainly can be very helpful in certain scenarios, and I'm talking about clinical pharmaceutical drugs, not illicit street drugs, of course. Sometimes, however, drugs can be really bad. And I'm going to tell you in this podcast that I believe that drugs are hurting people. In fact, I believe that there is a polypharmacy epidemic in the United States and that is it is disproportionately affecting our elderly. We are drugging our elderly. We're lining the pockets of pharmaceutical companies and drugging our elderly and it is not helping their health and it needs to stop. Stop drugging grandma! Remember the opioid epidemic? Well, this opioid epidemic continues to rage on. In fact, it's killing just as many people as ever at this time in the United States. In the last 20 years, opiates have killed almost half a million people in the United States alone. COVID has got some catching up to do if it wants to compete with our favorite narcotic. Now, as most of you know, opioids are medications derived from the opium plant. They bind to the opioid receptor in our bodies and they provide pain relief or more accurately euphoria, which makes us care less about pain. Most people were getting these medications from their physician. And in the last five years or so, we've really started cracking down on giving out these medications. This has pushed more people uh, to find opiates on the streets. Heroin, which used to be the major street opioid player, has now been displaced by the synthetic opioid fentanyl. There's now further derivatives of fentanyl. Uh, These are extremely harmful drugs. They're killing people because people take them and then they stop breathing and they die. Um, This is a big problem and uh, it's not in the limelight anymore, but it's still happening. What if I told you 
that the current opioid crisis we're facing is actually at least the third time we've been through this. So immediately following the Civil War, a bunch of soldiers were in injured and morphine was pretty widespread at that time. And so a lot of people became addicted to morphine and, and we went through kind of an epidemic of opioids at that point. Later on, kind of at the turn of the century, um, a product which had been synthesized 25 years earlier, diacetylmorphine, also known as heroin, named after uh, the German heroish, meaning heroic or strong, or the Greek word heroes, uh, was marketed by our friend Bayer, remember Bayer Aspirin? as an over-the-counter drug under the trade name heroin. This is now 1895, so we're, whatever, uh, 35 years after the Civil War, and it was meant to be a non-addictive substitute for morphine. Heroin, two and a half times more powerful and more addictive, was marketed by Bayer as a non-addictive substance for pain. Well, no surprise, a very large uh, epidemic of opioids followed uh, in the early uh, turn of the century as a result. And now, of course, here we are again with another opioid epidemic. What is going on? Why does this keep happening? Why do all of us keep getting duped by Big Pharma? Fast forward now to 1980. Drug companies are, once again, shoving addictive narcotics down our throat. And what a great product to sell. There's nothing better to sell than something that is very addictive. They come up with clever marketing schemes, like pain is the fifth vital sign. They infiltrate hospitals and clinics. Before any of us know it, hospitals are mandating that providers ask about pain, document levels 1 to 10, along with other vital signs, and then subsequently treat pain aggressively, often with narcotics. What a great program to make us use more narcotics. Once again, these companies are telling us that, oh, the new narcotics are, are less addictive or not addictive. Once again, we are being fed lies, and for some reason, we're swallowing them. Well, drug companies were right about one thing, and that is that pain is a vital sign. What I mean by that is that if you are not experiencing any pain, you are either dead or fully sedated. But the idea of documenting pain along with heart rate and blood pressure is just quite frankly ludicrous. Now, remember, in 1895, when Bayer dropped heroin on the market, it was sold as an over-the-counter drug, which is, one, just crazy, but two, it wasn't really something you could obviously blame physicians on or you couldn't could blame providers about. When we fast forward to 1980, these medications are all prescription drugs now. And even though pharmaceutical companies are pushing them on us, at the end of the day, it's your doctors and other providers that are the gatekeepers that are allowing patients to get these medications. Any 
provider can see that these medicines are extremely addictive. People get them and they want more. People get them and they become tolerant. And they, they begin asking for increasing doses and, and the escalation just keeps going up and up until finally people stop breathing and die in their sleep. This is so obvious to me. I don't know how this was missed. What I have to say is that doctors should have stood up. They should have said no. They should have thrown the pain scale out immediately. But they didn't. They didn't do it. And what concerns me is that this type of pattern continues to happen. Pharmaceutical companies push drugs on us, which is what they're meant to do. They're for-profit businesses that try to make money. But the problem is, is that doctors do what they say. We follow what they say. Now, let me let you in on a bigger picture, and that is that the opioid epidemic is part of a larger epidemic, which I am referring to as the polypharmacy epidemic. Let's talk about the leading causes of death in the United States real quick. Number one, heart disease. Number two, cancer. Number three, healthcare. Now, what I mean is something called iatrogenesis. And iatrogenesis is the causing of diseases, harmful complications, uh, bad health effects uh, by medical activity, by healthcare. This can include problems with diagnosis, um, harmful interventions, negligence, etc. And I will tell you that this is something that goes on in healthcare all the time. I hear so many doctors say, oh my gosh, how could we be the third leading cause of death? I'm not seeing this. We're not killing people. Just look at the opioid epidemic, people. Those people got their medicines from healthcare. Their addiction started right in our clinics. Those deaths are attributable to us. Just like the surgeon who does surgery one day, the next day the patient is bleeding all on their belly, and they say, all that bleeding is not my fault. It's time for us to all keep it real. Yes, healthcare kills people. Pharmaceuticals kill people. Our use of pharmaceuticals is one of the main causes of death in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that some people aren't being helped. I'm a medical doctor. I use drugs all the time. But yes, we are killing people. Polypharmacy is part of that toxic bad equation. We need to focus on it. We need to be better. It starts by accepting the fact that we, doctors, providers, healthcare is part of the problem. Medications are helpful when they are indicated and they are taken at a dose that is therapeutic and inside of a narrow therapeutic window. Outside of that narrow th therapeutic window and outside of proper indications, they are in fact toxins, they are in fact chemicals, and they do hurt people. And that is just a fact. And if we don't get things absolutely perfect, we're going to end up hurting people. And because we don't get things perfect a lot, we end up hurting a lot of people. Okay, polypharmacy taking multiple drugs. Most people agree that polypharmacy occurs when someone is taking five or more drugs and almost everyone thinks that polypharmacy is probably starting to become a problem when people are on 10 or more drugs. Now in 2020, 
the average Medicare recipient, and those are people over age 65, took five medications. What I've noticed in my practice is that if I see a person over the age of 75 and they come in and they're on less than five medications, I'm normally pretty pumped. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. You're, you're doing really well. If they're on one or two meds or no meds, I'm blown away. I'm like, holy cow, I, I want to be you. Like, you're so awesome. But mostly what I'm seeing is people that tend to be on five to 10 drugs. And I'm seeing an alarm an alarmingly large percentage of people on 10 to 15 drugs. And I'm even seeing people in the 15 plus range, sometimes even in the 20, 25 plus range. I think that most providers working in the hospital that are admitting patients to the hospital would agree that we're seeing people on a ton of drugs. Now there's probably a bias. We're probably seeing sicker patients that need to be admitted to the hospital more, but it is pretty common for me to see elderly people on 15 medications. I would say the average number of drugs that I admit somebody on in the elderly population is at least 10, if not, you know, 12 to 15. And that is also including supplements and over-the-counter medicines and things like that. But the lists get really, really long. While I'm over here on my high horse harping on how many drugs these people are on, I will tell you that it's really, really easy to escalate someone's medication regimen quickly and get them on a lot of drugs. If you think about it from the standpoint of a doctor, you know, you have an older patient come in, maybe they have type 2 diabetes, congestive heart failure, and high blood pressure. Just treating those three conditions might require 10 different medications. There may be research studies on every single one of those medications showing that there's a, a, a mortality benefit, meaning that people who take those medications are going to li live longer when we study them on a, on a, a population or at least a, a study level scale. Um, as a result, it can become really hard to get a, a sick population like the United States um, normal person on a, on a smaller or, or less drug regimen. Remember, though, that oftentimes these studies on drugs were performed in isolation, meaning that they looked at the effect of adding one drug on a defined population of patients that probably weren't on 10 other drugs. These days, people are, or researchers are starting to run more pragmatic trials, meaning they're starting to just add a therapy on to whatever else people were taking uh, because it's supposed to have a more real-world uh, approximation of if that might help your average patient who comes in and you add a drug onto. But the reality is, is that if we're citing studies, oftentimes they don't really fit because these things were studied as one drug. When we start to mix so many different medications, it becomes, I think, impossible to judge things as simple as efficacy, side effects, drug interactions. You just have so many things together that it becomes so complex and the interactions become so nuanced that it really becomes hard to tease out problems or issues. And the idea that it's beneficial for someone to be on so many drugs is getting harder and harder for me to swallow. There's also this big issue, especially in the elderly, of compliance. I see so many older people with memory impairment and we have these people on 10 or 15 drugs, they come into the hospital and they literally can't even tell me one or two of the medications they're on. And then we send them home with a, a bag full of pills 
and they're supposed to take those medications correctly. Remember, these are toxic if not taken correctly and at the right dose. And we're seeing a lot of old people have a lot of problems from toxicities of medications. On top of that, when you're dealing with your, your very elderly, let's say you've got a 95-year-old patient in front of you. If you look at the populations in those studies that you're using to decide whether or not to add on a drug, I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of them did not include these these very elderly people and if they they were included they were an outlier when using research like a clinical trial to help inform your clinical practice the first thing that you need to do is make sure that the patient you are treating fits into the study population that was observed in that particular trial or study not only do I find that many elderly people can't tell me what drugs are on but they're oftentimes unable to tell me the last time they took their medications was. And this should absolutely terrify us. If an individual is missing their drugs one day and then taking you know, double doses another day because they forgot they already took them, that's a huge problem. That's way more likely to cause harm than cause benefit and should, again, absolutely terrify any provider that's prescribing to that individual. In my short practice, I have seen so many elderly patients on multiple medications that are confused and struggling and having trouble walking. I then put them on hospice after a decision with or after a discussion with the patient and family only to remove all their medicines and watch them get so much better. Other providers must see this too. People sometimes get all their drugs removed and they're so much better off. What I see in, in a lot of my care teams is, is pushback in removing medication sometimes. So there can just be a lot of pushback from uh, other providers and other practitioners and other care team members and I just don't know that that pushback is, is so justified. I think that pharmaceutical companies have have infiltrated our minds more so than we think and kind of made us believe that these medications are so life-saving and so important. The reality is that so few actually are. Again, drugs are good. They treat disease. They keep us alive longer, but they're only of benefit when used in the right person at the right dose and for the right indication, and they're not mixed together with other stuff they shouldn't be. So, how did this polypharmacy problem get so out of control? Well, like most problems, the reasons are multifactorial. The first big problem, as I highlighted with the first example of the opioid epidemic, are pharmaceutical companies. These companies have taken control of our healthcare system and they are pushing these drugs down our throat. One of the main ways they do this is through academic centers. Academic incentives for research are not always so good. I see a ton of research every year supporting the addition of a medication. The reason for that is easy. Drug companies are willing to fund that. I mean, there's money behind it. There's money behind researching and studying these treatments. On the contrary, there's far less research 
recommending for the removal of medications. I'd say for, you know, and this is just an estimate, for every five studies that we have saying add something on, we get maybe one one study that says pull something back. And over time, that leads to big problems. And I know these academic physicians and researchers aren't trying to cause a polypharmacy uh, epidemic, but slowly their work is, is sort of pushing this ball along in the wrong direction. Perhaps the biggest problem though, and it seems like all the podcasts just seem to come back to this, is our increasingly unhealthy population. We have far too many people that are obese, have major chronic health issues, live a sedentary lifestyle, have unhealthy habits like drug use, and are all too happy to take a pill rather than making more meaningful interventions and changing their behavior. We've become so dependent on quick fixes. Um, On top of that, our population has become increasingly intolerant of anything that's unpleasant or uncomfortable. I mean, patients come in with a day of symptoms and they want a medication for it. And then they're on that medication for years. And then, and, you know, a few months later, they come in for another complaint. And they want a medication for it. And then they're on that medication for years. And it just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. Eventually, people start coming in with complaints that are side effects from the medicines they're already taking. And then providers, instead of diligently going through the medication list and removing those unnecessary meds causing side effects, they end up providing or prescribing an additional medication to treat that side effect. That's a huge problem, and I see that in my elderly patients all the time. Many patients that come see me will even demand medications at times. They want something for their pain, for their fatigue, for whatever's bothering them. When I try to remove medications from patients, I oftentimes am met with great apprehension. Patients don't want their medications removed. They don't want them changed. They've got this belief, just like so many providers have, that things are just going to fall apart if you start removing their medicines. And that's got to stop. We all need to recognize that medications are just as likely to cause harm as they are to cause good. I have a few simple rules in my clinical practice that help me decrease polypharmacy. And I'm going to share them with you and I hope they help you. If a patient does not know why they take something and I cannot find a good reason, I remove that medication. If a medication is potentially harmful and it does not seem important, that medication gets removed. If I suspect that a medication is causing a side effect, that medication is often removed. If a medication leads to one and certainly two hospitalizations, I remove that medication. Even if it's strongly indicated, if someone is being placed in the hospital because of a medication, that needs to almost certainly be removed, except for in a few uh, kind of rock-in-a-hard-place circumstances like, say, a mechanical mitral valve in somebody that's having bleeding. Uh, That's a difficult situation. Gosh, I wish I didn't see that as much as I did. Anyway, 
If a patient cannot safely take a medication, such as a blood thinner, because they have falls, that medication is removed. If an elderly person wants to stop taking some or all of their medications, I remove them. If I believe a medication regimen is too complex for a certain individual, I pare it down to just the, the few or couple most important therapies that are going to help them the most. I strongly believe that these days, the most important marker of a good geriatric physician is someone that removes more medications a year than they prescribe. The era of mindless pill popping simply needs to end. Now, there is some guidance in how to avoid potentially harmful medications in your elderly, and that is the Beers List. It's a publication that uh, the American Geriatric Society puts out every three years. It's an awesome reference to help you understand which medications may be disproportionately harmful in your elderly so that you can avoid them. And as kind of a uh, tag along to this polypharmacy podcast, I'm going to kind of go over the 2019 beers list. So please tune in for that next episode. And thank you so much for joining us today. There was just a lot of ranting once again. I've got a lot of feelings about this. Unfortunately, there just aren't studies to really support just how bad of a situation I'm seeing. I think it's particularly hard to study, but I think this will, will echo or resonate with a lot of other providers. Once again, and as always, I would love to hear what you think about this. I think this is all, I'm only telling part of the story here, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.